series on the life practices that help us draw near to God. Last week, Aaron spoke about the practice of Sabbath rest. We live in such a fast-paced and hectic society. It seems like there's never enough time for the things we really want to do. You could think of it as a version of what has been called the myth of scarcity, the notion that there's just not enough time for all we need to accomplish. And so we and our schedules become driven by fear and anxiety. But the myth of scarcity is actually more often talked about in the context of material wealth. We think that there just isn't enough stuff to go around. So we have to scrounge for, strive after what we need, and we have to look out for number one. In that realm, the realm of material wealth, I'm not sure we ever explicitly examine the myth of scarcity. To North American moderns, it seems more like an inescapable reality than a myth. Just like water doesn't feel wet to a fish. We swim in assumptions like the basic economic principle that more is better. And those assumptions run in our minds without ever being challenged. It's built into our cultural DNA and it drives much of the fear and selfishness that characterize our era. It's actually not all that surprising that scarcity is a narrative we are immersed in. It's an essential tenet of a capitalist society. For capitalists, it's nice that they can sell you what you need, but where they really make money is selling you more than what you need and getting you to accumulate more than you can ever use. More clothes, more jewelry, more investments, bigger houses, more cars. Those are the kind of things that I used to think of in the context of accumulating more. I can recall recall talking to someone about it and saying that it's those non-essentials we can be induced to overconsume. No one would ever overconsume an essential like toilet paper. And then COVID hit, and we were terrified at the prospect of a scarcity of toilet paper, and we started hoarding it. The myth of scarcity is not only pervasive, it has some pretty high-octane drivers behind it. Ego and fear. Ego drives us to consume because, after all, as the saying goes, he who has the most toys at the end wins. And fear drives us to consume because the thought of going without seems unbearable. There's an incident from the life of Jesus that I want to look at with you today. For me, it's a story that confronts the myth of scarcity head on. It also seems to be an important account because it is one of the very few stories that are recorded in all four of the biographies of Jesus in our Bibles. Let's take a look at it and see what it might have to do with the myth of scarcity. It's a story that you may know as the feeding of the 5,000. Here's how Luke records it. And Jesus took the disciples and withdrew apart to a place called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the villages and country round about to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a lonely place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in companies, about fifty each. And they did so, and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were satisfied. And they took up what was left over, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is such a rich story. Henry Nouwen, the writer and academic theologian, wrote an entire book on the meaning of the words used to describe the bread in Jesus' hands. Taken, blessed, broken, and given. Finding in them a metaphor for our lives. But I want to focus on the practical content of the story. The provision of food for hungry people. This isn't the first time where God miraculously provided bread to people who were in a wilderness and had nothing to eat. And it is probably not accidental that the story parallels the provision of manna to the children of Israel when they were journeying from Egypt to the Promised Land. In both cases, it was supernatural provision. Something was generated from nothing. The miraculous creation of food without time and without effort. But while the two stories are similar in that way, there are important differences. In the Exodus through the wilderness, the Hebrew people were given just what they needed no more, no less. But in this story, it seems there was an overabundance. The disciples gathered up 12 baskets full of leftovers. And in the Exodus narrative, it was an individual provision. Each person gathered what they would need for the day. But as we will see in today's story, the distribution was not to individuals, but to groups. We, had, we read that Jesus had the disciples organize the crowd into small groups of 50 or so before the food was distributed. 50 is an interesting number. It's bigger than your nuclear family, so it puts you elbow to elbow with people you may not know very well. At the same time, a group of 50 is small enough that you can sort of see what's going on with the others. Think of six rows of eight or nine people. You'd be able to see how the others were handling the baskets that were being passed around. And it is in those small groups that another sort of miracle occurs, or at least it seems a miracle to me, steeped in my modern context. The food was shared so that everyone was satisfied. This story could have gone very differently. Suppose there was a keen young man in the crowd. We'll call him Elon. 
When Elon sees the people being organized into groups, he works his way to the front row of one of the front groups and jockeys to get the spot right beside the path so that if something is going to be handed out, he'll be the first to get it. Now, now our friend Elon has a problem of sorts. He's a capitalist. The rubric that more is better makes total sense to him. And within that framework, if something is free, he knows he should take all of it, maybe resell it later. So when one of the disciples hands him a big basket with what looks like 75 or 100 sandwiches, he starts stuffing them in his pockets. He congratulates himself for having been clever enough to bring his briefcase along, and he stuffs it full too. After all, unlike the rest of the folk in his group of 50, who seem to be mere peasants, he knows how to store up and manage resources. I mean, really, it's a good thing that he's getting the sandwiches first because he'll save them up, while these country bumpkins would probably just have eaten them all. He finally passes the basket to the guy beside him, the basket that now only has about a dozen sandwiches in it. By the time it makes it to the back row, there's nothing but a few crumbs left. That's what happens in a world that operates under the myth of scarcity. But God didn't create a world of scarcity. He created fruitful abundance. The world that God made is not like a celestial game of musical chairs where we need to scramble for a seat when the music stops because we know there won't be enough. God created a world of fruitfulness and plenty. Walter Brueggemann, the preeminent contemporary Old Testament scholar, wrote a piece a number of years ago entitled A Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. He describes the creation story in Genesis 1 as the account of a world teeming with copious provision, and all of it is good, very good, a liturgy of abundance. But he attributes the origin of the myth of scarcity to the pharaoh in Egypt, who controlled all of the grain at the beginning of a famine and forced his people to buy it from him first with their money, then with their herds, then with their land, and finally with their lives, selling themselves into slavery to get what they needed. Societal structures in our world may create huge inequities, but the problem is not with God's provision that God didn't make enough for us to live on. The problem is with our failure to share. And what happens in the Bethsaida wilderness when baskets of food are provided to small communities of people? They're shared and everyone is satisfied, really satisfied, not just got enough to tide me over until I get home, but filled to the full. One translation of the word is gorged. Every last person in the last row of the group of 50 gets enough. The provision is so abundant that there are 12 baskets of leftover. In visualizing it, I imagine the guy who was disappointed to get a falafel and a pita being delighted to find that he was sitting next to a vegetarian who got an MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato, and was keen to trade. I envision laughter and high fives, stories bubbling up around a shared table, even without a table. 
I love that the writers say that the diners were all satisfied. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones sang, I can't get no satisfaction, the anthem of scarcity. But on that hillside, that late afternoon, everyone was satisfied. Satisfied in the context of two extraordinary circumstances. The miraculous provision of abundance from the hands of Jesus and the generous sharing, the communion, amidst the ad hoc groups that the disciples had created. Okay, so we're more than 10 minutes in, and you still have no idea how, how I am going to relate this to the theme of the series, spiritual practices that help us draw close to God. I have a couple of friends who are kind enough to give me feedback on my sermons from time to time. They each have commented that sometimes I'm halfway through and they still have no idea where I'm going or how what I'm saying relates to the supposed theme. So with apologies to Heather and Jan, here finally is the point. One of the traditional practices or spiritual disciplines of Jesus' followers from the earliest days of the church is the sharing of resources. The term that's often used for it is charity or almsgiving in older texts. But the word charity feels a bit too distant for me. These days I can exercise charity without any personal connection. I can just enter my credit card into a website without ever leaving my big blue chair. But the spiritual discipline of charity or giving, I think, connotes closer contact, getting close enough that we can hear and relate to the needs of those around us and respond to them as we're able. But how does all of that connect us with God? In the last two weeks, Aaron talked about the practice of mindfulness, even when peeling potatoes, and the practice of Sabbath rest, and it's pretty clear how both of those can help us connect with the divine, the transcendent, in important and meaningful ways. But giving seems quite different. We've been trained to see it as all about the need, the neediness that we choose to respond to or not. It's an interaction between me and the needy person, and God isn't involved. You see it in the advertisements for charitable causes in your social media feeds, compelling pictures and stories of need. It seems so outward focused. How can, it be, how can giving be one of the practices that draws us close to God? One problem with that perspective is that it centers us in the story. We see a need that will not be met unless we open our wallets as though scarcity is a problem that only we can fix. And yet, from God's perspective, things look quite different. In Psalm 50, God addresses people who seem to think that they must bring their offerings because God needs them or couldn't manage without them. In that psalm, God says, All the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for all the, for all the world is mine and everything in it. No, charity, giving or sharing, is not a spiritual discipline because God isn't quite up to getting the job done without our help. God could have fed the people unilaterally, as with the manna. 
visualizing a flock of birds flying over and dropping bagged lunches into everyone's lap. God is not limited in resources or creativity. Nor is giving important because we're supposed to get rid of our money. Jesus had some affluent friends whom he didn't seem to be critical of. Think of Martha and Mary of Bethany. Apparently, a big enough house and generous enough kitchen that Martha can handle 13 unexpected guests arriving for dinner and staying for a week. And Mary has a flask of perfume worth a year's salary that she uses to anoint Jesus. Now, giving isn't important because God can't manage without us, nor because we need to get rid of our money. It's a critical spiritual practice for a very different reason. We need to give because giving frees us up from the myth of scarcity and invites us into the abundance of God. When we give, particularly when we give enough that it hurts, we are implicitly turning to God in love and trust instead of resting our confidence in our bank balance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we cannot serve God and money. When we're serving money, caressing our RSP balance and hunting for sales so that we can get more stuff, we're turning our backs on God. But when we give, we're turning toward God. Note the sequencing in the story. The people in Bethsaida that afternoon shared their food generously with others, but it was food that they had first received from the hands of Jesus. And of course, giving involves more than just our money. For those of us who are introverts, we may hoard our emotional resources even more tightly than our cash. Our time, our space, our skills, and our stuff are all things to be shared, precisely because we understand them in another sense not to be ours, mine, but resources that God has provided to us and through us to the community. It may seem counterintuitive that in order to experience abundance, we need to practice generosity. But that's what I see in the feeding of the 5,000 on that Bethsaida afternoon. Jesus said the whole law could be summed up in two commands, love God and love neighbor. In giving, we get to do both. Looking to God in loving, confident dependence and loving our neighbor with what we have been given.